If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 19. I'm going to preach this evening on the the second exchange between uh, Bildad and Job, and I'll read Job's reply. But first of all, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. O Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are a God who has condescended to reveal himself to us. Supremely through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also through the words spoken by your servants, written down by your servants throughout the years. As we come now to reflect upon a specific passage in your scriptures, we pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds, that we might see clearly through this passage to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of salvation. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp against my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscri- oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will, how we will pursue him... And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Praise God for his holy word. We live in an era where uh, we're interested in psychology. What I mean by psychology is not so much the, uh, the discipline, the academic discipline of psychology, but we're interested in what goes on in the head. If you read some of the great literature from uh, pre-modern times, from the ancient world, uh, from the Middle Ages, there's plenty of action. 
there's some emotion and feeling, but there's not a lot of probing what goes on inside the mind. Really, from the 19th century onwards, uh, writers, thinkers, playwrights have become preoccupied with the psychology of action, the psychology of experience. And that's one of the things, I think, that makes Job chapter 19 one of the most fascinating chapters in Job, because here, in this sort of pendulum swing from despair to hope, we see a very human Job. One of the great things, I think, about uh, some of, uh, of the great novels of the last 200 years. Uh, I read this uh, uh, last semester in, in college, in one of the classes with my students, we read Notes from Underground. One of the things that makes Notes from Underground such a great novel is the narrator is so inconsistent. The narrator thinks just as we do. He doesn't think always in quite the same way. Experience changes him. He'll respond to the same experience in different ways. And here, in chapter 19, I think as we look at this chapter, we probably see two things. We can see a mirror of our own response to suffering, and then we see a great pointer to the hope that Job has in the midst of his suffering. Before we get to this chapter, though, it's worthwhile just summarizing briefly The previous chapter, I didn't read it for the sake of time, but uh, chapter 19 is a response to Bildad, Job's second comforter's second speech. And Bildad's second speech is by far the most brutal of the speeches made by Job's comforters so far. And I use comforter there now in the loosest sense of the word, because what is going on really is, is verging, no is, Uh, incredibly cruel. Bildad's speech runs through a series of, uh, I won't say arguments, but brief reflections. First of all, in verses 1 to 4, he asks Job who on earth he thinks he is, that this suffering is causing him to cry out against God. He's essentially saying to Job in the midst of his agony, who do you think you are? Why do you think you're so important? That God should listen to you in your time of suffering. And then he goes on to offer an analysis, a sort of praise, really, of, of what he said in his first speech relative to uh, wickedness. He says, you know, the wicked are always undone by their own schemes. The implication, of course, is that Job's undoing, his loss of his material prosperity, his loss of his family, his loss of his physical bodily health, is really the result of Job's own actions. And Job needs to repent. But he then goes on to make an observation that in some ways, as we'll see, perhaps has some truth in it. He makes the point that often uh, the wicked live lives filled with terror. The wicked do not necessarily live lives of ease, even in their wealth. They can be profoundly insecure. And he follows that by then saying that the wicked man has no lasting legacy. He's soon forgotten. He vanishes into oblivion. He's thrust into darkness. That's the image he uses. And then he rounds it all off with some extra cruel comments to Job, particularly verse 19, when he makes the point about the wicked are childless. 
Of course, resonates with a certain stream of Old Testament teaching. You know, children are blessing from the Lord, and Bildad is sort of drawing a conclusion from that that is not legitimate. The conclusion he draws from that is that the childless are therefore not blessed. And of course, when you remember, Job has just lost all of his children. That's a stunning thing to say in this particular context. And he goes on and says, the wicked man's name becomes a byword. And that this applies finally to all those who do not know God. The basic thrust of Bildad's argument is similar to well, what it was in his first speech, and that is, Job, your suffering is your own fault. Your problem is, you yourself are wicked, and it is that wickedness which is the cause of the agony and the misfortunes that you now experience. As is the case, as we've seen with a number of these comforter speeches during this short series on Job, there's some truth mixed in with what Bildad says. Uh, That's what makes, in some ways, Job's comforters somewhat difficult to handle at one point because it's not that everything they say is entirely wrong. Some of the things they say are actually quite accurate. It's true, is it not, that many of the wicked, many of the wicked and powerful, live lives of fear. Uh, Anybody who's read anything about, if you've read a biography of Joseph Stalin, the great communist dictator of the Soviet Union. You know, the last 10 years of his life lived with absolute paranoia that somebody was going to assassinate him. Probably well-grounded fears, actually. But the point is, all of his power did not give him security. Often the wicked, particularly the wicked powerful, do live in fear. They live in fear of somebody more powerful coming along or somebody catching them off guard and taking what they have away from them. The wicked are often bywords as well. Uh, Adolf Hitler. I, I don't know anyone who's called their child Adolf. No sane person. I didn't see somebody on the TV who'd done that. But no sane person calls their child Adolf Hitler today. Why? The name's a byword. As soon as you hear the name, you don't want to touch it. So Bildad is correct on that as well. And of course, coming to nothing and being forgotten. In my classes, I often, I'm a big, so I love the movies of the 1940s and 50s, and in my overheads, if I can find a relevant movie scene, I'll usually put a picture of a movie star up on the the PowerPoint, and they'll ask in the class, uh, anybody identify this movie star? So when I'm looking at rebellion in the 50s and 60s, I put a picture of James Dean up last uh, last uh, semester, and I say, anybody in class recognize this movie star? Not a single, single one of the 22-year-olds in my class knew who James Dean was. That's unbelievable to somebody of my generation. Put a picture of Frank Sinatra up, and I think three people recognized him. Greatest American entertainer of the 20th century. Three people recognize him. He's been dead less than 30 years. Time does swallow up reputations. Even the reputations of the powerful. Love that poem by Shelley. Uh, and the, so it's Ozymandias. The shtick is this traveler uh, meets somebody who tells him of a, a broken down statue of a king that he's seen in the desert. And the poem ends like this. And on the pedestal, the pedestal where the statue stood, on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. 
Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's a beautiful irony there, isn't it? The, the king, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. He thinks he's going to be demonstrating to the world how powerful his legacy is. And all around the lone and level sands stretch far away. And we're all heading that way, aren't we? In a sense. I remember my grandfather, but I don't remember my great-grandfather. I've seen pictures of him, but I never knew him. I didn't know what his first name was. We're all heading to oblivion. Isn't it amazing how the world carries on when a loved one dies? You can't imagine life without your father. And then your father dies, and the sun also rises the following day. Bildad, I think, speaks some truth here. Time swallows up all names and reputations. And yet he gets so much wrong, doesn't he? Childlessness is not the result of an individual's wickedness. Yes, the Bible says having children is a blessing, but we know that there are barren women in the Bible who are greatly blessed by the Lord. We also know that some of the wicked do live happily to ripe old ages. Adolf Hitler dies by his own hand in the bunker. 1945, Soviet tanks are rolling around the city of Berlin. Josef Mengele, the man who headed up the medical experiments at Auschwitz, he drowns in South America as an elderly gentleman in the late 1970s, having lived a pretty good life, by all accounts, in South America having escaped earthly justice. The wicked do not always obviously end in dramatic ways where justice has the last word. And notice most of all, I think, the ethos or the, the feeling of Bildad's speech. There's not one ounce of sympathy with Job. Yes, he gets some things right. But even the things he gets right are really undermined by the things he gets wrong and the overall tone. One gets the impression that he's there to beat Job in an argument. It's become an intellectual exercise for him. He wants to beat this man. This man, his friend, who lies in agonizing torment. And as I was reading it and thinking about it, it struck me, isn't it interesting how you know, the line between friendship and rivalry can be very close and very thin at times. Don't quote him positively very often, but the American writer Gore Vidal, I always remember him saying this and thinking, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. Gore Vidal once said, every time I hear of the success of a friend, a little piece of me dies. Isn't there some truth in that? Bildad's Job's friend but he still wants to beat Job in the argument. Think back to school. Who were the people you most hated losing to in athletics competitions or quizzes? It was often your friend. It was often your friend. Here we have interesting psychology, I think. Bildad is turning this into a competition, an intellectual competition, where what Job really needs is comfort in his suffering. And then at the end, by talking about childlessness, 
and being forgotten and thrust into darkness, he touches on Job's deepest agony and his deepest fear. Remember, earlier in the book of Job, Job loses all his children. And then he talks eloquently about his death. And remember what the the big thing he fears about death is? That his beloved descendants will forget his name. That he'll be forgotten. Remember a friend whose daughter was dying of cancer and he said to me that the thing she most, she told her father she most dreaded was that her young children would grow up and not remember who she was. And that's exactly what Bildad throws back at Job, almost his own words into his face at this particular point. The week of silence looks more and more like the most brilliant and pastorally helpful thing that Job's comforters ever did. Everything else is starting to look like an unmitigated disaster at this point. And that brings us then to Job's response. And I think Job's response, of course, in verse uh, uh, 25, contains perhaps the most famous verse in the whole of Job. We'll get there in just a few minutes, but there's a little bit of work to do before we arrive at that point. First of all, in Job's response, notice he's got Bildad's number, verses 2 and 3. How long will you torment me? Job is no longer under any illusion that this man is acting as his friend. He may be his friend, but his actions at this point are not those of a friend. And yet, in the verses that follow, we see a side of Job that perhaps has been hinted at before, but is now much more clear than ever before. Job is starting to blame God for his problems. There's a turn in Job at this point. Job is starting to rail against God. Job, if you like, is falling for one of the devil's most basic tricks. Job is reading his circumstances and blaming God based upon partial knowledge of those circumstances. One of the dramatic things we need to do when we read Job is we need to be constantly aware that we know more than Job does. Right at the start, we're given that heavenly courtroom scene. So all along, throughout the entire drama, we know. We know that this suffering has not come directly from the hand of God. God is involved in that God has given the devil permission to wreak this havoc within limits upon Job's life. We know that. And that shapes how we read the text. Job does not know that. So it does not shape how he experiences his suffering, and how he reads his circumstances. We know there's a heavenly courtroom. We know there is an accuser, Satan, behind all this. Job here is being overwhelmed by his circumstances, and he's allowing those circumstances to dictate his understanding, his understanding of God's role at this point. We might say, in some ways, an extreme form here, Job is pointing to one of the most basic problems that every human being, and I think every Christian, experiences. And that's the conflict between our experience and what's really going on. The conflict between our experience and God's revelation of himself in his word. And I think that lies at the heart of a lot of Christian anxiety. I think it drives... Quite a lot of atheism as well. When you think one of the classic, classic arguments for atheism is, you know, how can a God of love 
allow such suffering to occur in the world? That's not just a question that atheists ask, of course. Often Christians ask that question in the midst of great and terrible suffering. And I think it's a, it's a legitimate question to ask. If God is so good, why do religious people do such wickedness? That's a question, that's a question Christians ask. We should ask as much as atheists. You think about it, this disconnect between what we might call appearance and reality goes right the way back, doesn't it? The Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks good to eat and fulfilling the stomach. The text sort of says that. She saw it was beautiful and good to eat. It was pleasing to the eye and it was good to eat. Two judgments, we might say, on the circumstances. What Eve does, of course, is she sets that over against the command that has been given. She decides to read the command through the circumstances or set aside the command because of the circumstances. Think of Elijah. Think of Elijah after Mount Carmel. After Elijah's most spectacular victory, when presumably in his mind he thought, well, this has got to persuade Jezebel to back off, if not acknowledge that Jehovah is king. And he does the exact opposite. She doubles down. And he immediately despairs. He reads the circumstances. Even after the victory on Carmel, he reads the circumstances as meaning his life will be forfeit before the sun sets. It's the same for us, isn't it? We're not Eve in the garden. We're not Elijah post-Carmel. But often, we tend to read our circumstances in isolation from God's word. We tend to think we're the centre of the universe and therefore when circumstances seem to point against that, we look for somebody to blame. And the ultimate person to blame, of course, is God himself. There's a bit of all of us, isn't there, that tends to think God has not treated us fairly. And Job is in a very extreme situation. It would be easy, reading the first half of Job 19, to judge Job harshly. If you've ever blamed God when you've locked your keys in your car, I've certainly done that, then you have no right to sit in judgment and Job at this particular point. But listen now to Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, which I think is the most beautiful and succinct statement of how one should understand providence. Listen to this, question 27. What do you mean by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand... He upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, and now listen to these contrasts, between the good and the bad, or what we might think of as good and bad, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things, and then the punchline, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I think if the OPC had the Heidelberg Catechism as one of its confessional standards, that would be my question at Presbytery of Candidates for Ministry. Can you say that all things, good and bad, come ultimately from God's fatherly hand? That's a challenging question, isn't it? So, Job then, in the first part of this chapter, we really get despair. And then, of course, we come to verse 25. Or verse, really, verse 23. 
onwards. Suddenly there's a gear change. In verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. It's perhaps the most famous verse in the whole of the book of Job. Made particularly famous, of course, because Handel, Handel was not always the greatest connector of connected Bible verses, but he sticks it there, doesn't he? In his Messiah, connecting it to 1 Corinthians 15.20. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the firstfruits of them that sleep. Handel sort of engaging in, I think, basically correct biblical interpretation, but pulling those two verses out and sticking them together. What does Job mean here? How might we... Look at this. Well, one influential evangelical commentator actually says that whatever else Job means here, he's not referring to Christ. He's not referring to Christ. And his reasons, I think, I disagree with his reasons, but in laying them out, I think it's helpful for us to grasp something of the dynamic of Job's thinking at this point. He says, well, it can't be a reference to, to, uh, to Jesus and the resurrection because Job has already talked elsewhere in the book, about the finality of death. Job has already indicated things, death is the end. And therefore here he can't be talking about resurrection life after death or through death. Secondly, he says, it stands in line of a sort of development in Job's thinking. Job 9, he seems to be calling for a kind of umpire, a referee, who might stand between him and God and sort the circumstances out. Job 16, he thinks of one who might argue his case in heaven. And then in Job 19, he's thinking of a redeemer. And the commentator says, you've got to go to Leviticus 25, and the idea of a redeemer there. One who is a close relative, who can step in to relieve the suffering distress of a relative. It's an interesting argument. Uh, I disagree. But I think it's, it's helpful to interact with it. First of all, one of the things I don't like about that approach is it really presents Job as, as thinking pretty clearly. That there's this development about the idea of the Redeemer in Job. Well, first of all, it's poetry. And poetry is kind of tricky to, to pull too much out of too cleanly. Secondly, Job is suffering. And I don't think suffering is a great context for thinking clearly a lot of the time. Arguments don't tend to come to people with toothaches. The toothache is the only thing that you think about. So, for the first point then, poetry, think about that. Poetry means that when Job refers to the finality of death, could easily be a poetic way of Job talking about how devastating death is. To say death is the end doesn't necessarily mean say technically death is the end. It might be Job's poetic way of saying death is the ultimate crisis. Death is the ultimate crisis, the trauma of being wrenched from this earth. Secondly, think about the, the suffering. Again, let's go back to Elijah on Carmel. It's always struck me as amazingly human that Elijah, after his victory on Carmel, goes straight into a depression. Patterns so many, you know, Olympic, about wanting to trivialize it, but Olympic gold medalists, you hear about them having terrible depression. After Michael Phelps is always on the television these days advertising some counseling service because apparently he suffered terrible depression. 
having achieved far more by the age of 30 than most of us would ever achieve in a lifetime. We tend to think a guy like that, surely, simply contemplating his achievements will be enough to keep him happy. Well, no. We see that in Elijah. Well, if Elijah can be down in the dumps after the victory of Carmel, surely it's unreasonable to expect Job in the midst of his suffering to express himself consistently all the time in terms of an accurate view of what the world is. Job's cries at times are cries of agony. Well, you might say, but isn't it inspired? It's the inspired, inerrant word of God. Well, yes, of course. But that simply means we're told what Job thought. It doesn't necessarily mean we're being told that Job's thoughts are correct. Plenty of inspired scripture where speeches are made that are very wrong and obviously wrong in the Bible. Just because these are the words of Job doesn't mean we have to take them as expressing a correct view of the universe. He blames God for his misery for a start. We know that's wrong. We know that that is wrong because we know it is Satan who has done it. And yet when we move to the New Testament though, to return to this idea this isn't Jesus here, the New Testament makes it very clear that Old Testament saints had something of a grasp of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know how much, but they knew the divine human redeemer was coming. Think of Luke 24, verse 25. Remember the scene, Jesus is on the road to, well, the disciples are on the road to Emmaus. Uh, they bump into Jesus for some reason. They, they're not able to recognize Jesus. He knows they're depressed. He asks them, why are you feeling depressed? And they say, well, we had this leader, this teacher. We assumed that he was going to be the great hope of Israel. And now he's dead. He's gone. And Jesus' response is this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice the force of what Jesus says there. It isn't, well, the Old Testament's a bit obscure. I'm not surprised you didn't get it. Let me explain it to you. His response is, you're idiots. You should be able to see this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. First half of Job chapter 19 is very human despair. But as you know yourself, if you've suffered, you go through moments of despair, followed by flashes, periods of hope. That's very human, that switch. Here, I think, is what we have in Job 29. And there is no reason... Why this idea that his Redeemer will stand upon the earth should not be seen as a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of John chapter 8, when Jesus talks about Abraham. It's a mysterious statement, but it's very clear what it doesn't mean, and that is that Abraham had no idea about Jesus. So this is this, your father Abraham, Jesus addressing the Jews who were gathered there that day, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Christians read the Bible backwards. I had a Jewish friend 
Uh, Katrina knows him. He was a very good friend of mine, but two of the jobs I had in the, in the UK, and he always used to say to me, the problem with you Christians is you read the Bible backwards. And I would say, amen, we read the Bible backwards. That's the strength. Well, reading the Bible backwards, this looks very much like Job. How much does he know in the midst of his agony? Who knows? He probably doesn't know the time and the place and the name. But he knows that a divine redeemer will stand upon the earth. There's no reason not to see that as a Christological reference. It undergirds, doesn't it? What I said about providence earlier. All things come from God's fatherly hand. Job's suffering is bounded about and under control because the Redeemer is to come. For God so loved the world, we're told, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a word of comfort, isn't it? To those who believe. And a word of challenge to those who do not. What we see here, what we glimpse in the midst of this agonizing chapter, what we glimpse is a sign that Job has some understanding of Christ as Redeemer, as the revelation of God's fatherly care, as the means and the guarantee of God's fatherly hand in the midst of this dark moment that Job is experiencing. And that, brothers and sisters, is a lesson for us all. Let us pray. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the testimony in the midst of his agony to your fatherly love of your servant Job. And we ask, O Lord, that we too, when we face similar challenges, when we too suffer, might look beyond our circumstances to your fatherly hand and know, O Lord, and worship, because all is secure. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our worship this evening by singing hymn number 600.